Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you are very welcome indeed to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Lynn, and I'm joined today by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly. Hi, Fia. Hi, Hugh. And also political reporter, Jennifer Bray. Hi, Jen. Hi. Uh, you put up a photograph the other day. You were cycling, I think, past the Irish Times building. It looked very desolate and empty. It did, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm going in every morning to the uh, government briefings, which I actually never thought I would enjoy so much because it gets me out of the house. And it's, it's a nice cycle in from where I live. It's all downhill and it's all uphill on the way back. So it's not quite pleasant on the way back. But I, it's quite bizarre cycling through town. And it's not only is it completely empty, but it's shuttered. You know, all the, the shops are shuttered up. And visually, it's, it's, it's just really odd. And yeah, on my way back from one of those briefings, I cycled past the Irish Times building and it was just all the blinds were down. It was look, looking amazing in the sunshine. Just felt a little twinge, you know, for the old building. Uh, we'll be back there. We'll be back there at some stage. All of us will. Well, I will anyway. You tend not to be in there that much anyway. You're, you're more based in in Leinster House. Um, I suppose this is a politics podcast and there's actually a lot of politics to talk about this week. Fiac. I mean, if this were normal times, uh, this would be peak time for, for you guys because negotiations in the government are speeding up. There's very, uh, historically term, in historical terms anyway, a very historic moment this week when Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael came to a sort of a heads of agreement and issued a, a document. Um, not a document met with great enthusiasm, it should be said, and we go into that in a little while. But first, what's in the thing? It's a very kind of broad document, Hugh, and it seems to draw draw on these themes of you know 10 missions to set yourself and this idea of societal well-being and a new social contract and a much heavier involvement of the state in sectors like health and housing like you know much more spending by the state than perhaps we are used to but no real detail on it so it seems to take you know it's lead. Someone told me that Leo Varadkar is quite taken by Jacinda Ardern's way of approaching government. Apparently, this idea of well-being was was her idea. He brought this onto the table. Michal Martin's was this idea of a, a social contract, and then you have these you no know, ten missions, who, which are kind of broad enough. Some of them are motherhood and apple pie, a shared Ireland at the heart of Europe, opportunities through education, supporting young Ireland, better quality of life, green new deal, social contract, housing for all, universal health care, and reigniting and renewing the economy. The reason, like, it's widely kind of trail at this stage that it was kind of like a bit of a crumb to get the smaller parties interested. I'm not quite sure that worked because the Greens' idea is, you know, much more aggressive measures to tackle climate change, wanting to increase our carbon emissions reductions target to 7.8% a year from 2%. There's no figure uh, along those lines in the document. There's no figure on how much a national living wage would be worth at the end of this government's lifetime. That's kind of to draw labour in. And there is a kind of commitment to expedites launch care over five years, but not that much detail. And I, you can see what they were trying to do. What they're trying to do is to, to, to lay the kind of tableau so wide that people would be drawn in. But Jen will probably speak to this as well. I was speaking to people in the Greens last night 
and they kind of said, well, if they wanted to draw us in, they could at least have put in a figure or a kind of, you know, we aim to move to 7.8% or we will explore how we can move to 7.8%. And they even they felt that the lack of detail in it was disappointing, that if there had been a bit more detail in it, it might have been enough to draw them in. But that detail just isn't lacking. And then you have the other side of the argument, which is those who perhaps would look to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to form a stable government to get the country through a moment of public health and economic crisis. Many in both parliamentary parties asking, how are we going to pay for all this? The central theme of the document that there will be no return to austerity as there was 10 years ago, that there'll be no increase to income tax, no increase to USC, no cuts to core social welfare rate and, pub- and capital spending will continue and be funded through borrowing points to the government running up a probably um, more of a deficit if they if they do over the next few years, but not kind of grasping, we may have to have some impalatable decisions here to pay for all this. Now, it should be said, Jen, that, you know, some of the things that are very broadly, as Felix says, very generally laid out there, are things that are, are going around, floating around in the political mix in other countries as well as Ireland this, this time. In other words, that when we come out of this this freakish moment in, in human history that the way that things were dealt with after the 2008 crash um, are not going to work and that, you know, money is going to have to be injected into the economy and that there will be a greater role for the state in a, in a role of different things. And that's kind of a, that's kind of a commonplace, I suppose, to some point. But the document itself just seems to fall down on on both ends, it seems to me. There's there's none of the specifics which Fake mentions there to to uh, to attract some of the smaller parties in, or indeed just to just to say what the objectives are. Um and there's not really an underlying philosophy either. Maybe it's not a time for a philosophy, but this vague everything has changed mantra um is meaningless unless you put some you put some meat on those bones. Yeah, and I think after any election and after any big political event or any event, we always hear that things can't be done the same way again. I mean, it's nothing new to hear political parties saying that. I think the point that Fine Gael have been kind of privately pointing out to, to journalists and to their own TDs, in fact, is that this is not a programme for government. This is a document which is designed to show the direction that the parties are going in. And one of the things that really surprised me, I think, was that last week when we were hearing about this document and when we were hearing it was going to land and it was being finalised and there were being amendments put into it, there there was this comment made uh, that it, the, the document would surprise us, that it would, you know, maybe give people a, a second look and kind of say, oh, OK, this isn't what we expected. So when I heard that, I kind of thought, well, that sounds good or that sounds like a change or or something different. And I think I'm not alone. I know there are other people who, when they saw it, thought this isn't that surprising at all. There is nothing in here that made me think that this is, you know, any more, I mean, there are more left-leaning policies in there for sure, but it was kind of being touted uh, in the days before as maybe having borrowed ideas from Sinn Féin. And I I don't think that really transpired to be true. So, uh, you know, and, and if you take the issue that Fiat was talking about, the, the Greens and the car, uh, the emissions reduction, from talking to people within Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, they seem to have this attitude that it was up to the Greens during the talks that they already had in the in the last few weeks before COVID to outline exactly how a uh, reduction in that target, how that would work, what that would look like. And they say, the people in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the, the Greens were quite vague in those talks. And it seems to me that they're all, there are already these tensions and they haven't even gone into proper um, 
government formation talks yet. And this is what I'm hearing. And there's also a suspicion amongst the smaller parties that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, this is like almost a high stakes game of poker and that they're they're setting they're setting out their opening stall basically and they'll their concessions will be given down the line so that the parties smaller parties can come forward and say, We won this. This was our achievement in these talks, rather than those things being offered from the get go and them having achieved technically nothing, if you know what I mean, when it comes to presenting where you're at politically. So there is that feeling that it's not a programme for government document. It's an aspirational document. It was always meant to be an aspirational document. Uh, and the the substantive talks, the real talks, will happen in those uh, government formation talks. One of the few concrete things in the document, FIAC, is a commitment not to increase either income tax or USC over the course of the next government. Can we identify that as a Fine Gael part of the document? Absolutely, yeah. That, that came from... Leo, Leo Varadkar, I think in particular, wanting that in the document as a Fine Gael value, that they wouldn't increase income taxes to the USC. And it was interesting that as this document was published the other day, someone, you know, in the Labour Party got in touch with me and, and identified this and reminded me that I, I had forgot this, actually, that a similar promise in the 2011 to 2016 government on the part of Fine Gael caused significant trouble in that Fine Gael Labour coalition because... It, it, that was such a hard line that Fine Gael stuck to. And as things got tougher and as they had to implement, like, you know, particularly in the first half of that government between 2011 and 2013, 2014, say, the Labour Party was looking to perhaps bring in a, I remember at the time it was, I think it was a 3% uh, charge on people who, are, uh, USC charge on people who earn over 100,000 euro, if, if memory serves me correctly. And they thought this would be a, a handy way of raising some revenue to lessen the cuts in welfare and other things and Fine Gael absolutely rejected it out of hand and it caused a ferocious row within that government at the time. Fine Gael brought on the table in response cuts to dole payments and cuts to basic social welfare rates. So for Labour that promise stuck out like a sore thumb and reminded them of their past experience with Fine Gael just in the last decade, which wasn't pleasant for some of them. They did a lot of good things in that government, they would say, but look at the end result. They went from 37 seats to seven. And I think to remind the Labour Party of that in particular may not have been the most deftest of touch politically. Even someone in Fine Gael said to me, it may have been tactically clever by Fine Gael to put in that, you know, statement of their values, but strategically not the wisest move perhaps. And it's something that will be that, that they'll be hung by for the next four or five years is if, if, if this government gets off the ground. Now, Fine Gael people say that that relates to income and tax and USC only. It does not relate to the broader taxation system. So you could perhaps close some sort of, you know, tax incentives or look at revenue raisers elsewhere like we've seen in the past few years with the, the 9% rate in tourism gone from 13.5%. That type of thing is there but the commitment to raise income taxes i think even in fianna fall was met with raised eyebrows people are asking how are you going to pay for all these promises if you're promising that you will not touch income tax or usc so jen that's very interesting in relation to the labor party and this whole question of income tax it kind of comes up a bit in one of the columns in today's irish times dermot ferreter is writing about uh, a long-standing irish political tradition the most extreme example i think was in 1987 the famous slogan from um, charles high and fianna fall that health cuts uh, hurt the old the sick and the handicapped they got into power and they straight away cut all of those things and there is a suspicion that something of that sort could happen this time too 
Yeah, and I think that the whole thing is that um, difficult decisions will need to be made uh, over the next couple of years. And the document uh, doesn't really make any reference to that. It doesn't really reflect that. And I think that's why we're seeing such scepticism and I suppose such fear from the from the smaller parties about it, you know, because the job of the next government, I think we can all agree over the, between the years one and five will be to manage the um, the fallout of COVID-19, both economically and socially. And I thought it was interesting to hear Pascal Dunhu on with um, Sean O'Rourke and Ortiz this morning. And he was talking about how the next government will have to deal with that, obviously, but will lay the foundations um, for being able to implement some of the promises that we heard in the election about housing or, or health. And to me, that kind of sounded like the, the acknowledgement that you know, those promises made in the election were not in that space anymore. The sands have shifted and uh, now the job of the next government will be not dealing not, not dealing with a budget surplus, but trying to bring down a deficit, a significant, a significant deficit. Um, and what that says to me is that there will have to be cuts somewhere and there will have to be difficult decisions made. So I think when you when you look at the smaller parties' reactions and, and they're kind of saying, okay, well, you know, where where are the costings that underpin these promises? What figures are you going on? I think you can understand to a certain degree why they will be sceptical. And the Social Democrats this morning wrote to uh, Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin and in the letter they asked them to outline what are the economic predictions that you're basing these promises on? And secondly, what level of borrowing will we have to, will, will, will this require basically, aside from the COVID-19 fallout, in terms of these specific things in the document, what is the level of borrowing and will it be within EU financial rules? Um, so that shows you kind of where the smaller parties are at and it feeds into what Fiek was saying about Labour Party and, and, and their fears about the, the income tax promises because the document makes a lot of great broad stroke, broad, broad stroke promises but in terms of specifics about how it's, we're, we're going to get there as, as a country, it's, it's lacking um, and that is a cause for concern for those parties. But isn't there a bit of a problem with that fake? I think I mentioned this with, with Pat Leahy last week when we were discussing what austerity actually means, which is a discussion we might get back get back to at some point. The problem is I don't know what my life is going to be like in six weeks' time. Uh, nobody knows what the world economy is going to be like in 12 months' time, two years' time. There are dire predictions coming out from the uh, the IMF, for example, that this is the going to be the worst downturn since the Great Depression of the early 1930s. But we still we still really don't know. Yeah, I think that very point to you was made to me by someone in the regional independent group uh, a number of weeks back when they were kind of discussing whether they would go into this government formation process if there were not three or more parties involved in any coalition involving Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. So like f- from their perspective, they would have very specific asks about projects, constituency projects in some instances, or priorities they want implemented. And one of them said to me, look, we could go into this on the assumption of the economic projections we have now, which are ev- which are obviously different from what we had in the February election. And we are told you can have these projects here. And they said, we have no guidance or nobody can have any guidance or we would have to take a leap of faith that what we go into that government for, the price we would pay to go into that government would be so we could go back to our voters and say, we did this, this and this. They said, in six or eight weeks time, we could be told by the Department of Finance, sorry, those projections that we gave you those commitments on six, eight weeks ago, no longer apply. 
So everybody's kind of flying on a bit of a wing and a prayer here at the moment because we just don't know what it's going to be like in six months time, eight months time, a year's time. It may be worse than people are projecting. It may not be as bad. So I think that is this kind of great unknown in this whole process that the idea of government formation is people go in to achieve certain things. And as we mentioned earlier, the Greens, the Social Democrats, Roisin Shortall's experience of coalition government, so does Alan Kelly. They are not going to be naive enough as the Independent Alliance were during the last Programme for Government negotiation. Like I actually dug up the last Programme for Government uh, document myself last night. And if you look at, say, for example, Shane Ross's Garda Station's pledge, like the famous step aside Garda Station, it commits to a pilot project to examine how we may open Garda Stations. I mean, like that is like kind of red lights all over it, as in like, you know, this isn't the gimme you're going to get here. John Halligan's cat lab. We will look at opening a second cat lab in Waterford Hospital, subject to a, a report by, you know, experts or various other bodies. That type of thing isn't going to fly in this process because the Greens have learned their lessons from their experience of governments, as has Labour, and I bet Roisin Shortall is too. So I don't know even if those commitments can be made, given that in six, eight weeks' time, eight months' times, God knows where we're going to be economically. And Jen mentioned the, the EU fiscal rules. We don't know what the EU fiscal rules are going to be because the EU hasn't figured them out itself yet. No, and like there seems to be kind of a bit of flexibility being shown in terms of state aid rules and other other issues around Europe at the moment. But again, like I was struck by Michal Martin on one of his broadcast interviews in the last week or so mentioning European solidarity and European-wide movement. But like as we've seen in the last number of weeks, there isn't much European commonality to deal with these financial questions. So if we're going into this government on the basis that the ECB will, you know, keep funding going to European member states, what if they don't after a year and a half or two years? What if they pull back their support they have now and, and leave member states in their own? What if that common European approach doesn't transpire? Where are you then? You're going to have to make some tough choices in that, that situation. Jen, it doesn't sound like me like any of these parties are going to jump. Well, I I actually think there's a lot of pressure on the smaller parties, whether they acknowledge it or feel it or not. And that's because if they're if they if they and the independents don't get on board, what we're looking at is another election because the numbers aren't there. Um, and both parties have said that they don't want to or they don't think it's feasible to have a minority government over the coming five years when what the country actually needs is stability. And that's a kind of view shared across all political parties that the, the confidence and supply agreement will not work when we're heading into what looks like a, a, a recession. So be that given that that is the case, if you don't have the numbers and if you don't get some of these smaller parties on board and, and the independents don't come on board, if they don't, like Fiat said, get the kind of toys that they were offered before, then you're looking at an election. And I think everyone agrees that it would be kind of impossible to hold an election right now um, because of social distancing guidelines uh, and because of the fact that there are the restrictions in place. I mean, how would you canvas? How would you do a count? I mean, we saw the Labour Party count for uh, the leadership between two leaders lasted an entire day and there were only around 2,000 votes. So it shows you how constrained you'd be. So the onus is actually on these parties to put aside their own political misgivings about where they this might leave them in five years, what the public will think of them and maybe put the national interest first. We hear that phrase all the time, putting the national interest first. But there is a view that if there was ever a time to do that, it's now. And I was talking to somebody in, in Labour during the week who would be uh, quite senior and they said that, you know, there is a growing minority in Labour, still a minority, but a growing minority amongst the membership who believe that you know, if there is a time to go into government, it's actually now. 
now is not the time to go to the opposition benches. Why did we run in an election and make all these promises in our manifesto if we're not going to go in and try and push for them? Of course, you're not going to get everything that you want. And in fact, you might not get any of it. But the whole point of politics is to govern for the people rather than think about your own self-interest. So there's there's an element of that kind of pressure on the smaller parties. And, you know, there's there's an interesting duality between what Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil say about how important it is to have a third party or how important it is to have a large set of independents. So Fine Gael say we need a third party. We need at least another party. Whereas Fianna Fáil seem to be a bit kind of, well, you know, there's this big regional independent group you know, we we could make do with that. Finnegal are kind of scarred, I think, a bit by their dealing with independence over the last couple of years. And they know how difficult it is, especially when some of those independents are first time TDs. It makes it more difficult. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, th- there is a pressure there and nobody, uh, well, <laughs> nobody wants to see another election. I just thought there for a second that I'd love it myself. but <laughs> Maybe not even you would like it at this point. But I mean, there is a response, which if I was a member of one of the small parties, I'd come back with fairly sharpish to that analysis. You say there is another party in this mix, the largest party in the country. Uh, that's Sinn Féin. Just because Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have decided for, for their own reasons that they don't want to enter into uh, negotiations with Sinn Féin, um, there's a responsibility and an onus on them as well on those parties and perhaps you know perhaps we need to turn around and look at that again yeah i think that's the case and i think the labor party have started saying that in a um subtle way like if you listen to what alan kelly said immediately or in the days after he was elected leader he was talking about the onus being on the parties the other four parties i think he said or other parties uh plural and there was discussion at the labor parliamentary party a number of weeks ago i think where they talked about this idea of the wheel turning again to Sinn fein and why let me martin and leo varadkar away with their red lines, like we're in this position because of these self-imposed red lines that have just got everybody to this corner they're backed in. So the view of, of some certainly in the Labour Party has been speaking to is that like, yeah, why why should we, the pressure, come on us to basically dig Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar out of the hole? They've dug themselves in by refusing to do business with Sinn Féin. People in the Social Democrats have a problem with Fine Gael. Their view is that if it was Fianna Fáil plus Sinn Féin, we'd be more than open to it. They don't trust Fine Gael in particular to adhere to the spirit of the policies they outlined in the document published this week. And I think perhaps the Greens would also be more comfortable with Sinn Féin coming onto the pitch. So if that is the position, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, a, a blinking contest if the small parties want to, to go that way, that if they want to say, well, you can't just accept us or expect us to adhere to your red lines because you've imposed them. Why don't you open up yours? And I think we got a flavor of that in the last few weeks. So when it became clear about three or four weeks ago that it wasn't going to be an easily, easily foldable Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Green coalition, and then you'd be off. You could see the pressure beginning to ramp up on the small parties in media commentary amongst other parties about doing the responsible thing. And I spoke to somebody at the Greens last night and I said, well, like, it seemed to me that you guys didn't buckle. And they said, no, we're not going to buckle on that because we know that's going to come and we're willing to stand our ground. So this idea that they could be, you know, forced in for the national interest, they will probably turn around and say... That is us adhering to your conditions because you won't talk to Sinn Féin. If you were thinking of the national interest, why don't you think less of your own self-interest? There's something to be said for that argument, isn't there, Jennifer? Absolutely, yeah. No, And it's it's a good point. I think that the, the problem is that the reasons given by uh, particularly Fianna Fáil and, uh, and Fianna Gael during the election campaign to not doing business with Sinn Féin, I think that they've made that almost into an identity at this stage. I don't think for for them, it's it seems like less of a red line 
and more of a, you know, a complete full stop. Um, and I, I, I cannot see them changing uh, tack on that, although these are unprecedented times and the whole world has been turned upside down. And if you had told me when I started covering politics that we'd be talking in a podcast about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's joint framework, I probably would have laughed. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> And and just on that, what what do you think? I saw um, I saw a senior Fianna Fáil official tweeting this week that uh, despite the the agreement this week, he was still opposed to the treaty, by which he meant the Anglo Irish Treaty of of nineteen twenty two. And on one level, this is, as I said at the top of the podcast, this is a very historic moment: the two traditional parties of power in Ireland, the two sides of the civil war, finally agreeing to to come together. Um, it feels like a bit of a damp squib that that part of it. It does a bit. It's, <laughs> oh God, I don't know if I really want to go all the way back to the to the twenties, but yeah, I mean, it, the idea of civil war politics, as we know it, that this duopoly that has defined Irish politics for decades and decades, it's obviously coming to an end. Um, and I would have thought that when it happened, that it would be huge news. Uh, but obviously, because people are dying and there is a global pandemic which is affecting all of us. Uh, the normal order, uh, it isn't so, basically. And if this was any other time, um, if this was even January and this had happened and we were talking about this in the podcast, it would have been front page news every day of the week. And, uh, you know, it, it just shows you kind of where we're at uh, as a society that it's not. But in terms of the this idea that it's happened with a whimper, I don't know. I mean, talking to people in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on the evening of their parliamentary party meetings and getting kind of their, their, I guess, their opinions afterwards off the record and privately, they, they're, they're kind of, I think they, they seem to me to be in a sort of shell shock that it's happened, that they're, they're resigned to it. I mean, one of the uh, TDs in Fianna Fáil said to me, you know, we went it we're going into this parliamentary party meeting everybody had something to say it, it's it's an extremely profound moment for both parties but just before we went into the meeting the latest figures came out about covid deaths and that sort of changed things all over again so it sort of softened people's cough a bit I probably should pick a better phrase than that but you know what i mean so it's sort of yeah. it's sort of changed the it, it's changed the way that we that they are approaching the situation but I think that's why it seems like it's happened with more of a whimper than than a bang. But it's still really, really early days. There is an issue of trust between the two parties. The dist- the mistrust between the two is still there. The way they talk about each other privately is is still, you know, it's not what you would expect between two parties about to or trying to go into government together. And I think that will become an issue if they do get this thing over the line. Because I can imagine a scenario whereby... Look, I mean, we're journalists. We know how it works. We have contacts um, at every level of each party, which we work hard to keep and maintain. And um, some, you know, you rely on them to tell you what happened. Maybe at cabinet meetings, you rely on them to tell you what happened in committee meetings. Uh, you know, so we can tell the readers. I could imagine a scenario between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael if they were in government, whereby that's the normal course of events, but it turns them on each other and the paranoia that that will bring. So I think on a personal level, on an, on an interpersonal level, there's there's more difficulties ahead. But of course, that's not as important as the, the sort of bigger issues. But it's just something something that struck me during the week. I think it's to the credit of those who drafted a document that it obviously it's come in for a lot of criticism in the last few days, but it is to the credit of them that they didn't dwell on this historic nature of it. The word historic is only used once because... Let's face it, this is great, like, you know, chatter and, you know, it is a moment of historical significance. But 
that's the people who are involved in politics, who work in politics, who are interested in it. The wider public, I think, really don't care about this historic moment. Like, I think the confidence supply deal was in lar- the mind of large sections of the public, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael doing business together. Let's not forget how devastating Mary Lou Macdonald was in the general election campaign, linking them together, more or less saying they've been in government for four years already. So the public, to a large extent, have already kind of made that jump. They don't care about this as a moment of history. If they want a government, they want a government. And I think it's to the credit of those who drafted that document that they didn't dwell on that particular point. There are more important issues here. And to speak to Jen's point as well, um, there is another issue about this coalition that is exercising the minds of some TDs from a their own self-interest point of view. I, I, I would I would put it, but like not in a in, in, in a kind of malign way. That if the tensions within this administration are going to be there at the top between the two men who haven't really got on, don't like each other particularly. But then if you kind of filter down and you examine a few constituencies around the country. Cork Northwest, three out of three TDs will be government TDs in this arrangement. Mayo, three out of four TDs will be government TDs. Cork South Central, three out of four TDs will be government TDs. It is very rare that an outgoing government with 175% of the seats in a constituency returns at, a ne- at the next election with that seat tally. So you can imagine the tensions at play in those constituencies between the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs. They're used to chasing the same vote. And now they're chasing the same vote while in government together. That has a possibility to be somewhat destabilising and to add to the tensions that will be at play within this government. It doesn't sound like a recipe for stability, Jen. No, and, and that's the point that Fiag made is actually something that one TD said to me during the week, that they're, they're worried about, by coming together, the gap that that leaves for other parties to come in. They're worried about the space that it leaves um, to the right, I suppose. And, it, you know, it's that's... It, we know that the shape of politics is changing, but when just when FIAC outlines there the the constituency battles, it's it is incredible to think that that's where this is going. Um, and yes, you're right; it doesn't sound like a, a recipe for a happy marriage at all. Um, but we are where we are. Um, to use a phrase that I absolutely hate, so I don't know why I used it. But um, you know, in terms of the the coronavirus crisis and the the, I think it's the. The economical, the the economy, the fallout from that is going to be significant. It is going to be, it'll basically be the number one topic, the number one priority for the government over the next few years because we have 800,000 people who are relying on some kind of support now from the state, whether it be the pandemic unemployment payment um, and, you know, the, the pressure that will be on the next government not to cut, uh, not to change the income tax levels like we mentioned that they had in the document because they'll want to keep uh, um, incomes at as much the same level as they can in order to incentivize sort of uh, work. So how they balance uh, all those spinning plates, it, it's going to be a task and a half. Um, and actually, I think uh, Leo Varadkar summed it up quite well when he was talking about what they offer, what this government can offer to smaller parties and independents. And he said, um, all we're offering people here willing to join a government is endless effort, constant criticism and disappointment. That's him channeling his, his inner Winston Churchill again, isn't it? A, a little bit fake. Just a last thought from you. Um, what's the timescale here? When does the clock really start ticking louder? We will be moving, if all goes according to plan, into a gradual relaxation of some of the lockdown measures as we move into late May and into June. And some of those things, I think, are going to be more complex and more tricky and potentially more divisive and potentially harder for this caretaker government to implement. 
Yeah, I think you know the May Bank holiday is when we're due to come out of this this init- this this phase of lockdown, and it it is being flagged now. There will be some easing off, but nothing dramatic. Uh, I, I would expect. You know, it might be kind of going back to where we were a number of weeks ago. I think it will. If if you look at the way opposition parties across Europe are approaching this now that you have people accusing governments of being too quick to lift restrictions and risking life you have other opposition parties accusing governments of not spelling out their exit plan clearly enough but i think in terms of the emerging coalition that there is there which is Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael they are both sticking to the line that's given by the National Public Health Emergency Team Michal Martin seems to be really uh, i think conscious that he doesn't want to stray away from Tony Holohan's advice because he will be seen to be preempting him and if he is the Taoiseach presumptive that's not a great thing to do so I think the pattern we've seen in the last few weeks of Sinn Féin taking a step ahead of everybody and you know kind of spotting the next move and putting pressure on the government to do it may perhaps follow through again I wouldn't really envisage Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael having much political difference over when and how to unwind the measures but one thing I think is interesting about this dynamic if it happens if we have a Fianna Fáil Fine Gael government then you know you will have probably but see, because of the opposition benches were fractured in the last all that we had a Fianna Fáil party saying it wouldn't do business with Sinn Féin who were the second largest opposition party Let's say Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have to go it alone with a couple of independents. You don't have a, have a government and quite obviously across the chamber a government in waiting if they win the next election. So it's not just Mary Lou MacDonald. It is that left coalition that Sinn Féin will have corralled together. Uh, the Greens, the Social Democrats, Labour Party maybe and others. Now it is open to question whether the, the Sinn Féin will not be as generous with the vote left, transfer left uh, strategy the next time you can imagine putting second candidates on. But you will then distinctly have a alternative government across the Florida House. And I think that's really going to be an interesting dynamic too. It's, it certainly is. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Jennifer Antifiak for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Uh, remember that the best way to support this podcast, if you feel like doing it, and indeed all our journalism at the Irish Times, is to go on to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And remember, you can also listen to our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, uh, in our existing Worldview podcast feed. And like all our podcasts, that's on Apple uh, Podcasts, on Spotify, Acast, and all the usual major platforms. And also at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 